You know, the last few weeks we've been in a series called Becoming Completely Committed. Becoming Completely Committed. It's a teaching series where I've talked about some of the harder um, scripture and I've done my best to help us understand what Jesus uh, might have expected by saying these things. And our first week we studied Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And the reality that Nicodemus had impressed upon him was that there's no way to follow Jesus without him interfering with your life. There's no way to follow Jesus without him interfering with your life. Following Jesus will cost you something. Following Jesus always costs something. Also, a biblical belief is more than mental assessment or verbal acknowledgement. Next, we looked at Luke 7, where Jesus is invited to a dinner. And remember the custom. Uh, it was to greet your guest with a kiss, to wash their dirty feet uh, because they wore sandals and they walked everywhere, right? And uh, to anoint their head with oil, especially if they are a very special guest. But Simon, a Pharisee, even though Jesus was an honored guest, didn't do any of these things. Simon spent his life, now stick with me here, because this to me was like a hello duh. Simon spent his life studying scriptures. By the time he was 12, okay, think about this. From the time he was 12, he had memorized 12 books of their Bible, which is the Old Testament. 12 books. By the time he was 15, he had memorized everything in what we call the Old Testament. 15 years old. You guys have that down, don't you? Every word in the Old Testament. You got it? Yeah. Hard to get our mind around, isn't it? Um, He had committed to memory more than 300 prophecies about the coming Messiah. He was one of the best of the best of the best. However, what he doesn't realize is that it is the Messiah sitting at the table in his home right next to him. That to me is just hard to believe. Here he's done all the studying. He devoted his entire life to this, right? And um, here's the Messiah sitting right next to him eating dinner with him. You see, he knew all about Jesus, but he didn't know Jesus. Do you remember that? What was the word that I used for no? Yada, that's right. Yada, remember I said that um, it, all my life I've used this term whenever I was tired of hearing something or maybe I thought I was rambling and so I just say yada, 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 right? Like whatever, right? And we learned a couple weeks ago that that is not what yada means at all and I um, used it in really a, a, not a way that it was meant. Yada is uh, a biblical knowing of someone. Right? One example that is used, we read that week, Adam knew or yada Eve, right? And their son was conceived. Right? The, the idea of this is that it is a mingling of the souls. Right? 
And the question was, is do you yada, do you know Jesus? Now, one thing I said was that uh, uh, I love Bible studies. That's why we have like eight, I think, um, in this church right now, um, not including Sunday school, right? I love, I think Bible studies are so, so important. However, the the bad, not bad, but the, the negative possibility of Bible studies is that we know Jesus, but it never moves to a knowing of Jesus, right? So we have to... We have to learn about Jesus through Bible study, through Sunday school, through times like this. But that doesn't move it to a knowing Jesus. And this is the knowledge that saves you. So, again, yada. Do you yada Jesus? Yada is a mingling of the souls. Well, today we're going to turn to Luke 14. If you get your Bibles out, Luke 14, uh, whether it's your Bible, a pew Bible, or a device, find it on your device. For some reason, my glasses are bugging me. Luke 14, we'll begin with verse 25. Luke 14, verse 25. Now, something that we do in uh, this church is we have what's called a Bible pledge. And essentially what it is is something that reminds us of what this book is about in our life. Okay, so once you find Luke 14, if you would uh, close the Bible on your finger and raise it above your hand, head, excuse me, and let's say our Bible pledge together. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. I can have what it says I can have. Today I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess that my mind is alert and my heart is receptive. I'm about to receive the incorruptible, indestructible, ever-living seed of the Word of God. I will never be the same. Never, never, never. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, amen. So Luke 14, beginning with verse 25. Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and He turned and said to them, Whoever comes to Me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brother, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be My disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow Me cannot be My disciple. Here ends the reading of God's holy word. You see, at this point in Luke, Jesus had huge crowds that were following him. They had uh, gotten pretty used to seeing the miracles that Jesus did, the wonders that Jesus uh, did. Jesus seemed to welcome people who were curious and wanted to find out more about this unconventional rabbi named Jesus. But this time comes when Jesus wants to talk about their relationship with Him. And in a way, He draws a metaphorical line in the sand and wants to know where people stand. Ultimately, 
what concerned Jesus most was not the size of the crowd. It was their level of commitment, their level of commitment. After all, have they come for just a show of miracles, right? Have they come just to hear a motivational speaker? I mean, they might even be asking themselves, I wonder what kind of bread and fish Jesus is serving today, right? So Jesus gets up ready to preach and he says, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. And he goes on and he says, whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Can anybody do that cricket sound? I would imagine after Jesus said this, that's kind of what it was complete silence except for the crickets. How many uh, quote-unquote churchgoers do you think he lost that day? So tell me, today, 2016, how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this? It's obvious he's not talking to a select group of people. You know, it's a, it, it very clearly states in verse 25, Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and he said to them. Right? I've heard a lot of people try to get around this particular scripture by saying, Well, he was speaking with the disciples. I mean, the disciples hold a very uh, key place in his church that's going to be happening as soon as he is resurrected, right? And so he is speci- uh, talking specifically to his disciples, right? Well, I mean, I can understand that. That's, that's good. But, but Scripture says, Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned and he said to them. So, does he truly mean to follow Jesus or to follow him? You have to hate father and mother, son or daughter, or brothers or sisters. Does he, does he truly mean that? Well, one thing right off the bat is that hating your family would contradict other teachings of Jesus, right? What are the uh, two primary laws that Jesus talked about? Love of who? Love of God and love of? Neighbor. And there's only one law that is more important than loving your neighbor. And what is that? Loving God. So, so, you know, if you'd been following Jesus for quite some time and you heard this word hate come out of his mouth, you would definitely sit up, wouldn't you? You'd be like, whoa, where in the world did this come from? So what does Jesus mean? Well, this began to help me, as I thought about this, it it helped me begin to understand maybe the way he's using this word. So, think in your mind, you're a Jew. Your parents are Jews. Your grandparents are Jews. As far back as you can remember, even that wild uncle at the wedding party 
have all been Jews. Right? It is entrenched in your family, Judaism is. You've learned all the stories clear back to Moses and Abraham, right? About this awesome group of people that are now um, considered in the Jewish faith. So let's say that this is what you know and you've always, it's always been spoken to you with pride, right? And how God chose you, this group of people, to be the salvation of the world, right? And then this traveling evangelist comes through your town and comes through your neighborhood and you decide to follow him and his name is Jesus, and then you, at some point, are baptized. How would that make your family feel? Oh, come on. Wake up, people. How would that make your family feel? Yeah, they'd be mad, right? They'd be hurt, I'm sure, deeply hurt, wouldn't they? Right? They would be feel betrayed, wouldn't they? But, but Jesus said, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother or wife and children. Does that give you new ears now to hear this scripture with? Brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Does that help that word a little bit? Because you would be like you were hating your family, wouldn't you? You are turning your back on your family. Jesus is honest with the crowd and about what it costs to follow Him. He lets them know that following Him may mean offending your parents, offending your grandparents, offending your entire family. It may mean being cut off from the family will. Or even cut off from the family altogether. You know, I have talked with people who put off following Jesus because they don't want to hurt or offend their parents. I've literally talked to people like that. I have literally talked to people and have people tell me that as soon as their grandmother dies, I'm going to join that church. Because, you know, grandma's a Lutheran or grandma's a Pentecostal or grandma's whatever, and it would just kill her if I joined your church right now. In our scripture for today, some Bibles say, love me more. And uh, most say hate. Now, something that we need to know, the ones that say love me more, do you remember the living Bible that um, I grew up with? Green, dark green Bible, right? Um, it's, a, it's a great Bible. Same with the message. The message. Anybody ever hear? I know if you're a regular here, you have heard about the message a lot, right? Um, those are great devotional Bibles, but they are not study Bibles. They're devotional Bibles because, for instance, a Southern Baptist pastor wrote the Living Bible, right? And so anytime he speaks of theological matters, he translates it, or it's called transliteration, in a way that he understands it as a Southern Baptist pastor. So in other words, what are they going to talk about whenever he talks about someone getting baptized? It's going to be immersion, right? Which nothing's wrong with immersion, but that's just, he's a Southern Baptist pastor. There would not be any other way he would think, right? The message is written by a, uh, oh, thank you. Boy, it was gone. 
a Presbyterian pastor. Now, I absolutely love the message, but I know when I read the message that this is written by a Presbyterian pastor and how he believes. You hear what I'm saying today? See, it is important that you know that if the living Bible has been your Bible, guess what? You have been brought up in a Southern Baptist theology. Right? Just know there's other theologies out there. Right? And, and so if you, um, the last 20 years or however long the message has been out, if you only read the message, well then you might as well go to a Presbyterian church because that's what you're getting. Right? Now, I love those two Bibles. I don't want you to think I'm down talking them at all. You just have to have knowledge of what you're reading. All right. Now, when you read like in on Sunday mornings, we read the New Revised Standard Version. Then there's the New International Version. There's the American Standard Version. All those have Bible scholars. Sometimes, in some cases, hundreds of people who take the Hebrew and the Greek and translate it and conference together on what words are the best to use. Right. Now, why am I telling you all this? Well, the Living Bible says to um, love me more. Every Bible that I have been able to find that I would consider a Bible study Bible says the word hate. Okay? Now, why does that make any difference? Well, maybe none other than you need to know that. And because when I think of this, love me more or hate Maybe the most accurate is somewhere in the middle of that. Is that fair? You see, hate captures the degree to which um, we love Jesus more. Imagine the different loves of your life are competing in a race. All right? So you have... Um, Jesus, you have your spouse, you have your children, you have a best friend and maybe a a sibling. They are all lined up in the starting blocks, right? And they are running the race to find out whom you love more. Do you have this picture in your mind? The idea isn't that Jesus comes in first place. What Jesus is trying to get across with this idea of hate, that um, a more accurate idea is that Jesus is the only one on the track. Do you hear the difference? So when it comes to a race of who you love more, Your mom and your sibling and your kids aren't even on the track. Jesus has it all. That's what that word means. It is such a strong word. And do you understand why it's such a strong word? Right? All right. So so when we compare our relationship uh, with Jesus to anyone else, there should be no competition. No one else should even be on the track with Jesus. Jesus um, has our love and our affection, our yada, more than anyone else. Now, 
fans, remember a couple weeks ago I talked about fans, how I was a Royals fan, you know, the Fairweather fan thing. Well, fans will try to make Jesus one of many, right? Some fans might make, even make Jesus the first of many, but Jesus uses this strong language because when he defines your relationship with him, he wants to be your one and only. Let's say that together. Jesus wants to be my one and only. Jesus wants to be my one and only. So today, as we think about this concept, and I pray you continue to consider what it means for Jesus to be your one and only, here's some ways that might help you figure out who Jesus competes with in your life. For what or whom do you sacrifice your money? For what or to whom do you sacrifice your money? I did this. Lay your calendar and your checkbook or your credit card bills next to one another. Right? This is a Dave Ramsey trick. Okay? You'll find what is the priority in your life. And usually, it gives you a very uncomfortable feeling when you realize that Jesus and the church isn't even on the horizon. So you lay those next to one another and you just, what do you see most? That is what or whom you sacrifice your money for. That is the one that you love the most or the ones you love the most. How about this? When you hurt, where do you run for comfort? When you hurt, where do you run for comfort? What or to whom do you run to? Do you run to your spouse? Do you run to your family? Do you run to your mom, dad? Do you run to work? Do you run to the bottle? We all run to somewhere. When you hurt, where do you run for comfort? What disappoints you or frustrates you the most? I have to be honest with you about something here. First service, I said computer, but I think it's probably electronics. I'll include my phone in that. More than anything else in my life, I cuss at the electronics more than... I mean, please tell me I'm not the only one. And to be honest with you, in those moments, I'm thinking, Eric, why do you even have this? Right? Don't you ever feel that way? If it's making you feel like that, if it's making so much frustration and hate pop up into you, should you even have it? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. What disappoints or frustrates you the most? What is that saying? In that moment, Jesus isn't even on my radar, is he? That computer has consumed my life. Is that right? No. It shouldn't be at all. Ever. It shouldn't even be in the race. Right? Do you hear what I'm saying today? Finally... What really gets you excited? Okay, folks. I bet you I could walk in. Yeah, I'm a United Methodist pastor. I said I bet you. You understand what I'm saying. I bet you I could walk into your house, and if your favorite team is playing, 
you are more excited and more boisterous then than you ever are in a worship service. I'd almost lay my life down on that. But guess what? When you come to this worship service, this is why I don't understand why people that are members of a church never darken the door. It blows me away. The one, the only one who saves you from hell is Jesus. And that's who we celebrate. We're supposed to celebrate. That's why Dana got a little frustrated. Because we heard like one amen and the rest were crickets whenever he was talking to y'all. Right? If we were in a football game, you'd be hanging on his every breath. Am I lying? Or whatever your favorite sport is? Folks, you need to put the, the one on your finger, on your hand, and hold it up during work. You know, I may be being silly, but do you understand what I'm trying to say? You know, those big styrofoam ones is what I'm talking about. Bring it to church. Hold that up, man. Oh, Eric. That's disrespect to God. Oh, crap. That's 50s Christianity, folks. We're in 2016, and I believe we're closer to Jesus in the way we worship than we ever were prior to this. For nine years. And if you worked with me, you know it. I have put over-the-top energy into worship services so people will be excited about what, is God, what God has done for them in their life. Has it worked? Some days I wonder, honestly. Well, praise God. That's why we do it. When we, um, I sent out an email uh, to... Uh, Cliff, and he sent it out to everybody that was on the prayer warriors. And, and I tell you what, it's asking for prayer for um, us pastors who write sermons. But beyond that, it's asking for you to pray and to think about what the sermon is going to be and preparing yourself. Again, if you're going to a football game or a baseball game or a basketball game, I bet you all day at work you're going, oh man, I can't wait to get there. You can't even think about your work hardly because of what you're going to be doing, Right? Do you think about worshiping God five minutes before you darken the door of the church? Praise God. You should. Last night, you should be going, oh man, tomorrow's worship. I can't wait. And some of you might be going, well, you know, honestly, it's kind of boring. Well, guess what? When you put your energy into it, when you put your passion into it, it becomes much less boring and much more exciting. Right? I chased a rabbit and I apologize, but hear me. If there's one thing that you ought to be excited about, uh, this, there was one church. It, it was one of those churches that had the fan shape, uh, you know, the pews. And I honestly, I think it was Plattsburgh, Missouri. Um, one day just something happened and I said, man, I'm just, I don't even know if I should preach. And someone started the wave. I loved it. That's the kind of fun we should just automatically have in worship. Do you hear what I'm saying today? You see, whenever Jesus is the only one on the track, 
or when we hate, quote unquote, everything else compared to Jesus, that is the way our worship life will be. Do you hear what I'm saying today? Jesus wants to be your one and only. There is a possibility it's going to cost you your family. There's a possibility it's going to cost you your spouse. There's a possibility it's going to cost you your kids. There's a possibility it's going to cost you your boat. There's a possibility it's going to cost you your golf clubs. There's a possibility like myself that it's going to cost me my red Mustang GT with a white uh, canvas top. I'm still mad about that. Right? There's a chance, folks. Following Jesus is going to cost you your life. And that is not metaphorical. That is real. This is the reality of following Jesus. Now, Jesus ends his seeker-friendly talk. (laughs) Everybody know what a seeker-friendly talk is? Yeah. It's a service where uh, churches have used in the past 20 years. They're getting away from it now, praise God. But where it is meant for people who have never been in church before. And the bad thing is preacher, uh, preachers, um, folks that have never been in the church before leave that service thinking that, man, that is the most shallow thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. Right? Because it's all fun. It's the party. Right? But uh, um, so... Jesus ends his seeker-friendly talk today. He is, this is far from seeker-friendly, right? This sermon is far from seeker-friendly. If you're not a Christian, you came and you heard something that probably 90% of the people in here don't want to hear today. But this is the reality of following Jesus. And whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple, is how Jesus ends this talk. And he says, Amen. And most of the people leave and are never seen again. My question for you today is Is Jesus your one and only? Is Jesus your one and only? Let's pray. Dear God, we celebrate you. Some of these things are so hard to hear and to take into our minds, God, and understand. And, and we just ask that, I ask in Jesus' name, that you anoint all of us in this room today. Help this message bother us. Help us think about it all week. Help us try to grow our minds and our thoughts around it so we have a better understanding of, of your expectations, Lord. We are fully aware that we are not perfect. We are fully aware that we have failed you many times, Jesus. And we give you praise for your grace and your love and your forgiveness. But dear God, help our faith not be cheap. Help our faith be deep. Help us grow our faith deep, Lord, so that we literally can say, Jesus is the only one on the track in the race for our affection. We love you, God. We celebrate you. 
And we ask for your powerful anointing in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.